Welcome to a Revival House sermon where we champion you to become the unveiling of Jesus to this world. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in review, and hopefully we'll get somewhere. Because if I review, it'll just take up our whole time, which is fine. You live in constant remembrance. But um, I, I don't want to just run on and be like, all right, y'all got that. Let's move on to the next big thing. Because in reality, that is, that is the big thing. That is the foundation of everything. And as I'm finding is if you can begin to get this revelation, it, it, it easily dominoes everything that stands against it. And so, we'll talk about that. We may swing it in a few different ways. And Siri, where we go. But I made the statement last week, and I'm going to continue making the statement that the Trinity really is the most important thing, belief, or whatever you call it. I hate to call it a doctrine because it's more than a doctrine. It's a reality. It's a relational dynamic. It is the truth of who God is, but the Trinity is the most important thing you believe. The most. And you think it's just an aspect of your God, but in reality it is the most important thing that you believe. And more than just a belief, but actually in an encounter and a relationship with the Trinity will rock your world. And so, I like to imagine, the way my brain works is I'm, I am a Westerner, and I think in a linear f- frame, and so for this aspect, I'm going to allow that, right? <laughs> but I, I, I have this linear frame that I, I'm like, okay, I lay out the whole history of the universe before me, and... The most important thing about the Trinity is the fact that the Trinity did not happen at the New Testament. It it did not begin with the apostles. I think they pioneered the belief and understanding because they were coming into an encounter in the truth of who Jesus was. But the amazing truth that they pioneered was that it was before time was the Trinity. And that was probably the most important thing that they did in their lifetime was hammer out the truth and the reality of the Trinity. I, you know, you read in the book of Acts, and it says, you know, after Pentecost and all that stuff, that the whole, the body there gave themselves, they were one in one accord, and they, they gave themselves to each other, and they gave themselves to the apostles' teachings. And, you know, and usually you're like, oh, yeah, you know, good church people, you go to church and you listen to the sermon, right? That's what that means. But in reality, I'm, I'm like, no, you don't understand. They're living in new covenant. What does that even mean? What does that even look like? And sure, that's some interesting questions you got to hammer out. But then the second thing is suddenly we're coming from this Jewish mindset of a monotheistic God, one God idea, right? And some had questioned some things and whatnot. But ultimately, this, this one singular idea, let alone they had been stooped in the delusion of who God was, and then Jesus comes and says, no man has seen the Father, but I have, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So suddenly, they had a brand new picture of who God was being exemplified in Jesus, and then they now have the understanding that God is three in one, that there's three people, that they are loving each other so intimately and dynamically that the only way to describe it is one, and that you have been brought into that love dance. And so what does that mean? So you can imagine the disciples and the apostles were experiencing and questioning and saying, what does this look like? And people are coming and going, yeah, we're, yes, they're raising the dead and changing the world around them, but I believe it was actually an outflow of the relational dynamic they were encountering inside of the Trinity because suddenly they realized that God was a relational being first and foremost and that actually what Jesus was doing was tearing the blinders off to see that we were always destined to be inside that circle. And so 
praise God for what they did. And, and some of what you understand, that relational dynamic, is the most important thing. So if in this, in this linear understanding, as I, John 1, 1, we read that last week, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John, from the very beginning, says, I don't care about your, your, your genealogies. We've got that. The other guys got it. They did a good job, right? He says, but John comes along and goes, let's go before the genealogies. Let's go before anything. Let's go before the cosmos was even created and what is there. Because when you lay that foundation, then you can figure out what the purpose of even creating this whole thing was about. And so he says, in the beginning, before anything was the word. And the word is Jesus, and he was, was with God. And he was God, so we've got to lay those things out. But the word, God's thoughts, intentions, desires, and a perfect exemplification was inside of Jesus. His desire was before the beginning. And so we have the Trinity. And he goes, let's go all the way back. So before the universe, and then let's take it a little bit. Let's go back before time. We go before time even began. Let's go a little further back. Let's go back before the thought of creation or the universe was even there. So let's just notch that back a little bit. And if we actually go all the way back there, what do you have? You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit living in communion with each other. And you may go, yeah, that's great. Well, obviously, you know, God was before the universe. No, you know, you don't realize that as Athanasius says, that if God is three in one, that changes the dynamic of who he is. See, if he's single or was ever, ever, listen to this, as Athanasius said, if God was ever single solitude, if God was ever just one, then he could be other than relational. But because you go before time, because you go back way before even the thought of the universe that God was a relational being and he was in the love circle of Jesus loving the Father and the Father loving the Son and the Spirit loving them and then constantly going back and that they were other-centered loving each other so much that in that relational dynamic that dated before anything, that is who God is, a relational being. And you get that down first. Because if God is ever single, if God could ever be one, if God could ever be austere, if God could ever be remote, if God could ever be removed, if you went far enough back, then if you found it, then that could be a, an identity or a, a personality of God. But it's not there. Because if there's ever that piece of who God could be, then he could be that to you. And he could judge you according to that, but he's not. So the Trinity is the most important thing because in this relational dynamic, they, the Trinity was living in union and communion inside of agape love. The only is statement in all of the Bible is that God is love. It's not that he is just exemplifying love. It's not that he's wrath, it's not that he's judgment, it's not anything. It is, the only is statement of God is that he is love. And the isness of who he is, is that he is love. And better described as agape, God love. And God love is explained in being other-centered and not self-centered. And you need to put that. When you drive that stake into what you believe, that God is three in one, that he is a trinity, you need to also drive right along with that stake the truth that you will never back down and bow on. And that is that agape love is other-centered. Because if there's ever a moment that God could be loving, but he could be doing something out of his goodness for something in return, then he's selfish. And it's actually self-centered love. And it's very dangerous. But because the is statement of God is that he is agape love, other-centered, then he never actually thinks about himself. He's actually always projecting his love towards someone else, expecting nothing in return, loving them for who they really are. That's number one. You get those two things nailed down, and you have got a patristic, 
orthodox, powerful theology. Got it nailed, if you can get those two things. Because in that, we can find ourselves really quickly. Because as you may quickly, if you're already running the numbers in your head, you've already heard some sermons and teachings in Christianity that directly violate that very principle. You were created to do what? And everybody will say, well, you were created to give God glory. Was I? Oh, geez, I felt the whole room go, what? (laughs) You were created to give God worship and give God glory. And what's so funny about this, this is what's so funny. I have sat in rooms, I've listened to sermons, and it's so great to hear the two-step shuffle of, you were created to give God glory and give him worship. And they'll tell you that. And you're like, oh, okay. And then they'll say, but God doesn't need it. And you're like, thanks, I'm useless. (laughs) Did you catch it? Have you ever heard that sermon? You were created to give God glory and worship, but you know what? He doesn't actually need your worship. He doesn't need it, and he doesn't really want it, you know, because if God ever needed something, then he wouldn't be God. So we can't say that, but you were created to worship him. And you go, so I was created to worship him, but he doesn't want that. So basically, my meaning in the universe is pointless. You guys need to walk your thoughts through, okay? You Wait, I was created to worship him? Let alone, let's just get down to the theological root of how jacked up that is. God is love, other-centered, but then suddenly he says, I'm going to create these beings, and by golly, they better worship me. I'm going to create them for love, and I'm going to give them free choice, and they better choose to worship me, because I need that. And everybody does that. They go, whoa, 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 whoa. you know, God doesn't need love. You know, he's, per- he's a whole person. He doesn't, he's not looking for nothing. And so they, that's where they go, well, he doesn't need the love. You know, he just wanted to create you to enjoy him or something like that. And they, but, the, but you were created for this. You see how dualistic this is? And they're going, yeah, that's what you were created for. But God doesn't want it, so God created something he didn't want. Let alone, he created something for the purpose that it would come back to him. That he would receive something from you. That's love on the terms that it would come back to you. And that's self-centered. And people will go, well, God is so holy and so pure that he can actually demand that. And I say, very bad things. But, <clears throat> but I say that because if you go back to that God is not austere, distant, and single, that he's a relational God, and he's always other-centered, he created you because he wanted someone to share his love with. And he never thought they better give it back because he doesn't do that. He just said, you know what? You can almost imagine the three dancing in the living room, right? Just everyone's laughing, I know, but I have to shock you sometimes. I don't actually believe that, but you know what I mean. You can imagine the three, and they suddenly go, this love is so good. This love is so amazing that I love you, and you love me, and then he loves you, and he loves me, and oh my gosh, and they're in this swirl of perfect other-centered love that this swirl, the dance of the Trinity happening before time, and they said, you know what? Let's make humans, and let's make them where we can love them, and we can be other-centered towards them. And hint, hint, I'll give you a spoiler in the end, that in the encounter of our other-centered love, they'll be able to be other-centered. And they'll get to join in the dance. It's not that you were created so that you would give God worship, it's so that you would hop in in the dance. You know what would be fun is if we could dance with some more people. Because God is so other-centered that he would make that decision. What I just said was, is God is way better than you think. 
And he is actually so humble and so selfless that he would do the most selfless thing possible. And that's make humanity that could possibly cost him everything just for the chance that he could share. That's how good God is. And he wants to share. And we know this because maybe we should read him, maybe we will. I'm just in review. Never mind, we're not going to do this. Review for the next three hours. No, no, but Romans 8, let me just throw a couple of things out there. You know, Romans 8 verse 29 says that you, before the foundations of the earth, you were predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. So before creation was ever laid, before anything, predestined just means it was already pre-planned. It was already his idea. It was already his intention. His pre-planned idea was not just, I want to take this a little bit farther and realize what you're saying. What I'm saying, hopefully you're going to say it. But what we're saying here is that when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, the garden, oh, this is going to be great. I'm just going to be so happy to make you all just blink a few times. The garden was not the climax of the plan. I don't even care now. This is just fun. The garden was not the completion of the plan. The garden was only just the first step. Because you were predestined before the foundations of the world to be conformed into the image of Christ. You can't be conformed into the image of Christ until he's incarnate. The plan before time began, even before time began, it was in God's plan that Jesus would become a human and then Jesus would sit at the right hand of the Father and that he would bring humanity into the dance. The only way to get humanity into the Trinity is by Jesus becoming a man. The incarnation of was the climax of creation, not the garden. And I have stood up here and said, God, Jesus' plan for coming was to get you back to the garden experience. I don't actually believe that. I think that was an example of living in peace. That was an example of living without any delusion. That was an example of living literally in the garden of fellowship with God. But the true plan of the Trinity was we're going to make Jesus the incarnation. That's why St. Athanasius wrote the whole book, The Incarnation of the Word of God. Because Christmas is really important, y'all. It's not a baby. It's Jesus, the incarnation of God coming to this world. That was the climax of the cosmos. Jesus is the climax of the cosmos. Still in review. But, so here we are. They, they devise the plan. We're going to create humanity. And Jesus, you're going to become one of them so that they can come in here. And we're going to have this relational dynamic. And we're going to share this love. And it doesn't tell us exactly how it all worked out, but we know that they, they had to have weighed the price of the cost and said, what, what is it going to cost? And in God's infinite knowing, as I'm sure they were able to see, they're going to they're gonna believe a lie. And they're going to tar the face of God and they're going to run from us. But we're going to go into that delusion. And it may cost us the universe, but we're going for them. Before the foundations of the earth, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Ephesians 1 also says that you were predestined for the purpose of God. In the beginning was the word, the thoughts and intentions and desires and plans that God was going to make Jesus flesh. It's all right. I will review this 15, 20, 
500 more times until we get it. But I'm asking a lot of you. This is why the most important thing in the early church was the belief in the Trinity. They fought tooth and nail. They died for this stuff. I don't know if you're taught that, but there was people literally died for their belief in the Trinity. Why would they do that? Because they saw from the very beginning that if you mess this up, if you mess this up, you can lose everything. You can miss the good news of the gospel. So let me just run through a couple of dynamics of what this looks like <clears throat> real quickly to help us maybe even get a better picture of this. Is that they create Adam and Eve in the garden and the fellowship that God walked with them and lived in union with him in this beautiful place that they knew nothing but the goodness of God and they believed no other lie. And as we t I talked through kind of the, the, the garden experience last week, and I probably can't do this quickly, but I'm going to try, but essentially there is Adam and Eve and the, the snake tempting them and she says, no, I can't eat this fruit because God said if I eat this fruit, I will surely die. And he goes, oh, you won't surely die. You'll actually become like God. So there was the first lie introduced. One was that there's something about God that he's holding back, that there might be another side to God. There could be something hiding, as I, we talked about a little bit. There could be something hiding in the closet of who God is that he actually hasn't shared. Listen, he actually hasn't shared all of himself with you. God, can you imagine running this through? Wait a minute. If God hasn't shared everything about who he is with me, then God could hold back. And there could be something about God that actually is removed Something about God that actually pulls back, there could be a secret to God. Suddenly, there could be something hiding in the closet that you don't know about. And the other thing is, there's something about me that I don't know about and that has not been told. That maybe I'm not whole. Maybe I'm not complete. Maybe, maybe I'm not all who I'm supposed to be. God said I was. So now we have you believing a lie about you and believing a lie about God. And suddenly, we see, as soon as you accept, as soon as you believe there could be another side to God, as soon as you believe there could be a dualism, as soon as you believe there could be something hiding in the closet, as soon as you make God other than one in the unity of his love. Yes, he's three in one. That does not mean that he has three personalities. This is the angry part. This is the happy part. And this is the one that blows like wind. You know, it, people are like, yeah, there's like, you know, Jesus is the nice loving side of God. And then God's the. But if the Trinity truly is so in unity. That they are one. There cannot be disunity in their desires and intentions. I'm sorry, you can't have Jesus and God fighting each other in their desires. I really want to really blast him with lightning. Oh, come on, let's be nice to him, God. You can't. Sorry, you can't dance out of rhythm. You're out of step. The most important thing you believe is the Trinity, that the Trinity is the perfectly unified in their thoughts, intentions, and desires and who they are. Because Jesus said, no one has seen the Father, but I have seen the Father. No one has seen the Father, but if you've seen me, right? Ephesians talks about that Jesus is the express image. Some translations use mirror image. Jesus is the mirror image of who God is. Basically, what Jesus is saying, if you can't find it in me, you can't find it in God. I am exemplifying every aspect of who God is, and I'm showing you exactly who God is for the intentions and the desire to show you that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Therefore, we are three in one with one desire, one love, one tension, and one mind. 
He was saying the idea that you have about God, that he has these desires and he's this way, are not true. Because I'm showing you that we're not like that. I do nothing that I don't see my father doing. What was Jesus doing when he stooped down with the woman caught in adultery and said, no, I don't judge you. Get up, sin no more. Let's go. Was, was the angry side of God there? Yes, because he says, I don't do anything, the angry side of God. I don't do anything that I don't see my father doing. That means Jesus saw the father stooping down to this beautiful daughter and saying, no, I don't hold that against you. Get up, go sin no more. You've been made whole. So he is the express image, thoughts, intentions, and desires. He is the word. He has, Jesus is what God has to say about himself. Let's nail that down. So here we are, soon as you let in the door, there could be another side. What happens? We see it really quickly. <gasps> Suck the air out of the room. There's fear, there's anxiety, and suddenly they start thinking about themselves. No, 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 the woman you gave me did it. No, 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 the snake that you created. No, 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 right? They're becoming self-centered. And we have to cover this again. This is just the greatest thing that I think I've ever seen. It's just so beautiful. Is that, and I, I, I quoted it from the book. I don't remember. I think it was uh, one of the professors or something talked about that and walked you through the process that it was not programmed into people just to love God. It was not programmed into them, right? Because then that would mean you're robots and you don't have free will. I'm not a Calvinist. I know I say the word predestination, but I don't mean it like them. Don't you dare put me in the Calvinist camp. Blech. I'm going to puke. Anyways, God bless Calvin. But so he says, look at Adam and Eve. They're humans. They weren't programmed just that they just naturally stepped into this stuff. They actually encountered God, had relationship with him, and it actually released them and freed them to love him back. In that express encounter, they come into this reality. Jesus even said, the truth shall set you free. Right? We all know that verse. Truth shall set you free. Well, when you hear the truth and you come to the reality, what is the truth? Well, Jesus is the word of God. So that's God's total intentions. That's exactly what God has to say about himself. And when you see the truth, that there is no other truth, there is no other light, that the darkness can't comprehend this light. The truth is that God is for you. He loves you. His desire, his intention, his other-centeredness is towards you, and he's inviting you in to this relational place with him. You see that all, everything that he's not, and you see everything that he is. And an encounter with the truth of who God is brings assurance. You can't give yourself to someone that you don't trust. And suddenly, the truth of who God is brings trust, brings assurance. And assurance gives you freedom. The truth shall set you free because the truth is you're safe, you're good, he's good. But now you're free. You're free to reach out. You're free to love. You're free to not be thinking about you anymore. You're free to become other-centered. You're free to partake in agape. You're free to turn from the inward out to the out. You're free to be conformed to the image of Christ. What is the image of Christ? The other-centered love towards the other person. And suddenly, the revelation of who God is frees you to become other-centered. And Adam and Eve were living in that dynamic. And suddenly... They eat the fruit, and just within that quick, the fear and anxiety of that who God could be, that they're not who they're supposed to be, they suddenly have to start thinking about themselves. They suddenly don't have the truth. They believe a lie, and they don't have the assurance. They have anxiety in place of the assurance and fear, and so they have no freedom. They literally are in bondage instantly, and suddenly they go, I got to take care of me. And suddenly, all of humanity was plunged into that. That they were, all of humanity got the disease, the delusion 
of this lie. And we're in bondage to this lie. And the delusion just is like compound interest. It just continues to compound. That not only is it just a little bit of tar on the face of God, but that the deeper you go into your anxiety, the deeper you tar God's face, the more that encounter of who you think God is, the more you paint him even more evil. So, because what do we do as humans? As I love how uh, Baxter Kruger says it, he says, we as humans project what we believe upon God. And that's just true for humans. I can ask anybody in the room, well, well, tell me about God. What do you think God is like? And they go, well, I think he's like this, and I think he's like this, and I could probably talk to you long enough that I could figure out your experiences and your encounters and your beliefs are what you're projecting upon God's face. I could easily track that back pretty quick from your childhood and then from your stuff like that, and I'll be like, oh, well, that's why you probably view God that way. So what you're doing is you're actually projecting upon your image upon God's face. And so what's happening is, you're taking your anxiety from the lie and you're projecting that upon his face. Let me give you another theological key that'll just rip every foundation of what you believe down. Who changed at the fall? Now, you'll all actually probably really quickly agree with me and then you'll start seeing the dynamic. Who changed at the fall? Did God change at the fall or did we? I think... It's pretty safe to say, I think I'm pretty, with some pretty smart people, is that God doesn't change. The Bible tells us he doesn't change, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We know that there's no shadow or turning of him. God doesn't change. And if God changed, then the whole trinity would implode. So let's not have that happen. So God can't change. God doesn't change. So who changed at the fall? Well, it would be pretty quick to say, well, I think we changed at the fall. God didn't change. So what was Jesus doing on the cross? Who was he changing? Was he changing God? Or was he changing us? Again, I feel like I know I'm shooting some low balls right now. Pretty, you know, you're like, okay, Anthony, we get it. We're not that dumb. No, 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 I know. I, I believe in you guys. But... Think about this. Let me just let me just let me just attack some of your beliefs. So if if I were to go to almost any evangelical event anywhere and they were to give me a gospel message, they would say, well, and they'll they'll always base it on this one thing. Well, God is holy. And you go, hmm, what is the definition of holy? Well, Kind of interesting you would say that. According to their definition of holy is, well, God is holy, and that means he can't be around sin, and legally he's not allowed to do that. And so when you sinned, then legally he couldn't be around you anymore, and so now his wrath and his judgment and anger towards that sin is upon you, and that Jesus got in the way, and it's okay. He came, and he took all of that anger, all of that sin, and he let God beat every bit of anger that he had towards sin on his son and then covered you with blood and now you're, you're good to go in there because he, he, he's better now. And I know I'm simplifying. But you see when you make that little thing of, well, God is holy and he can't do that, then who changes at the cross? God or man? If you say God's thoughts and intentions and desires is that I am holy and I can't be around sin, and I want to release my wrath upon that sin, then when Jesus dies, God suddenly is happy and nice and cool with you. So God changed. Hmm, I thought we just decided that God doesn't change. Oh, here, I'll give you a Bible verse. <laughs> what? 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 says that Jesus' death was God, that Jesus, God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. 
So, and it is even more amazing that it says that God was in Jesus. And if we really believe what Paul said, that Jesus became sin, then God was in Jesus becoming sin. <gasps> there goes your holiness. And so if God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself, or was God in Jesus reconciling himself to the world? See what happens here? I just, I have a fun statement. I've been, I've been holding this one back. The legalization of the holiness of God is anti-biblical. Because it makes God have to change at the cross, not you. And if you don't want to do that to the Trinity. God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. God, for, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So it is God's love, his other-centered love, directed towards you, changing you and reconciling you to himself. God never changed. So Paul, and this is what's so amazing, we've got John and Paul. We don't know if they really crossed that much. But we've got John saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have, it, this was his thoughts and intentions before the foundations of the earth, before anything just was Jesus' plan, that he would be the Word, become flesh. He would be the light of the world. And then we have Paul over here going, before the foundations of the earth, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I don't know if those two guys mixed a whole bunch, but two different streams are both realizing really quickly that not once before the fall or after the fall did God ever change his intention and his desire. His intention and his desire before and after the fall doesn't matter. Before time ever began was that Jesus would become flesh and that you were dearly loved and you were invited into the Trinitarian life dance of love. So nobody in the Trinity had to change before or after the fall, nor on the cross. It was you changing what you believed and getting free from the lie that was spiraling you into self-centeredness and to sin. Sin is just the fruit. Sin is just the fruit that you're totally disconnected to that relationship that frees you from all of that. That's just the fruit. And legalization is just chasing the fruit. But Jesus was saying, no, I have never changed my plan. That's how I know that after the fall, God didn't have to go, what are we going to do, Jesus? What do you think? What do you think? How can we get these people back to us? Uh, I guess I could die. No. In reality, he's going, it's all right. He's okay. This determines the cost, but we already decided we were doing this. You're going to become them. And, I've, and so it, he says, but it's all right. You're going to dive into their delusion. You're going to live it, but you're never going to violate our relationship while you're in them so that you can bring them to us. Because a human, a son of man, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It was always his plan. So you know what that means? Let me make a few statements from that. That means God doesn't do abandonment. That, does, that God never does separation. God never holds back. God never abandons. God never turned away. God never changed his plan, his thoughts, his intentions, his desires, and love towards you. God never changed, never can, never will. Sin doesn't change his mind. Sin is just you living out the emptiness of not being with him. Let's see, what do we need to do to finish review? <laughs> you know, um, by making the, the Trinity the highest law, basically, uh, Baxter Kruger makes a statement, and I totally think it's a fabulous statement, that 
the Trinity and the relational dynamic of God is the hermeneutical law that everything gets translated through. And hermeneutics is just the, is the process and steps of uh, translating and interpreting like scripture and whatnot, right? That's all that means. So the highest chief law that is like the coffee filter that everything you think, see, believe, and read goes through, does this agree with the trini tr Trinitarian relational life of love? Because I can tell you real quickly, your legalization of holiness gets stuck in that coffee filter. Because what it does is it turns God into two people, almost. At least a split mind, because he's got one part of, well, I, you know, we've painted him as this judge. We've tarred his face. This anxiety says, oh, well, God must be judging me and looking out and trying to throw the gavel at me, so I'm going to tar that face on him. And then suddenly, and that, and that God must be separated from me, right? And so he must be looking at a way to, you know, to, to judge me. And so, he, yeah, he's a judge. And so, oh, and he's got to be separated from me. He's got to be pulled back from me, and, and, that's, and that's what it's happening. But what you've got, and so, and so you say, well, God can't be around your sin because he wants to judge your sin, so he backs away from you, and then he sends Jesus. But if we actually believe that God so loved the world that he sent his son, that means this was God's idea to send Jesus to come in there. But I thought it was God's idea to, to like, you know, fire his wrath upon you. And, and people will actually say, well, you know, you know, God wants to love you, but he also wants to be this way. And so, and so that's, it was God's idea to send Jesus, but so that he could appease this part. But then you get some jacked up Trinitarian life when you do that, when you've got God having two minds. We already went over this, but I'm going to hammer it again. Because Jesus is what God has to say about himself. We don't find that in Jesus. Jesus, as Bill Johnson says, is perfect theology. That's beautiful. But I can real quickly solve that and say, no. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Didn't scare him. God walked with Enoch before there was law. Ugh. How did he know how to please the judge? How did, how did he balance the ledger? Oh. I guess he just didn't play by the rules. What, what, what do you do with Abraham? He doesn't have nothing. He's just out there talking to God. And so what you have is that man is falling into this total disarray of tarring the face of God. And it's just getting so bad. And this is the problem that God has. Before he can ever get you into the Trinity, he has to at least get you to come talk to him. See what I'm saying? You've got this really bad dynamic. Is that when God steps in the room, you've painted his face so evil that you run away from him. And so now the very creation he created is terrified of him and running away because they've been infected with the disease of the delusion that God could be holding something back. And so they're running away in this diseased, cancerous state from his very creation. How is he going to now bring them in? How is he ever going to make that happen? That's a real pickle that God's got on his hands. What am I going to do with that? They won't even get near me. It's like a wounded dog running away from you. And you're like, I really just want to help you. And they're like, no. And so God's got a plan. I'm going to make covenant with these people, and they can't get away from me. <laughs> and really, that's what we see in Israel and the whole nation is that he said, we're going to lock ourselves into covenant. You can't violate the covenant. Basically, God locked Israel in a room with them and said, ain't nobody going anywhere. And really, you read the whole Bible, and you, you saw what it is? Israel is always trying to get away from God. They did everything they could. And you know what? God said, nope, I made a covenant with you. I ain't leaving, and even if you're terrified of me, I'm staying. And they, the whole time, they're trying to get away from God because they're terrified of this God that they have created in their minds. But God 
says, and I believe, and it was, I didn't come up with this. I can't remember. I read it. Somebody made this amazing thing, is that Israel, as we see the journey of Israel, that they called it the womb of the incarnation. Because it's through this line of these people, he's creating the womb of the incarnation. And what's great is, is God is creating language to understand him. Right? Without Israel, without this time having to live with God, we wouldn't have come up with holiness, righteousness. We wouldn't have come up with atonement. We wouldn't have come up with priests, prophets. We wouldn't have come up with any of this stuff. What this is doing is it's actually laying a foundation for the incarnation to come, build upon this language. What he was doing is he was beginning to build the bridge to cross that great divide of the delusion of what you believe. And so he's giving language and words and experiences in these things. But mind you, the whole Old Testament is a shadow book. That's what, that's what, that's what Paul calls it. You know, this, these, are just, these are just shadows of what are to come. A shadow can be very distorted of the real thing. But this is just shadows. And then what's creating is a foundation for the incarnation to come. And to, to write this whole thing. Because Jesus is saying, all right, if they're going to run away from you, I'm going to step into their delusion, but I'm not going to run away from you, God. Never once did Jesus lay down the Trinitarian love dance, even while he was a human. He didn't say, peace out, I'm out, I'll see you later, God. No, they kept that relationship, because without it, I don't think the universe can exist, actually. I think if God ever violated the, the dynamic of the Trinity, then the whole place would just collapse. Let me uh, hit a few things here. Hey, this ain't review. So this is just kind of help you maybe continue to, let's just grab a few things here. You know, Colossians 1, 16 through 17, it says um, that everything, that all things created that are and that are to be are in him and held together by him, right? And this is, and you've probably heard this thought, you know, that, Everything that was can't exist without Jesus. The, the amazing thing is that all things were created through Jesus and in Jesus, and without them, there is nothing that, that can be, right? And Paul talks about Jesus being the sustainer of all things. So that means everything that was created, everything in the universe, everything in creation, everything across this entire cosmos is held together by Jesus. And now, maybe if you kind of get into like some of the scientific discoveries of like the, the God particle, it's pretty interesting. We're seeing some of that confirmed. But Jesus is holding everything together. Even way back in the day before they were studying any of this, Athanasius questioned and thought, and he said, hey, he sees creation, and he says, what is God being good to do when he sees creation falling into nothingness? And that's the definition of sin that they have, is that it's actually being empty of form or void of identity. And, he, and, and so he says, what is God being good to do when he sees his whole creation living in sin falling into nothingness? And Athanasius said, what would happen if God just let it go, that it fell into such disarray and nothingness that Jesus, if Jesus were to ever pull his hand back from holding everything together, that it would just cease to exist. And that's what Athanasius was saying, is if we continued to go, would Jesus just have to, all right, they've, they have run themselves into nothingness. They've run so far away that he actually would let go of holding every atom and every electron and neutron together that everything would cease to exist. So, because, you know, if in, in our day and age, we've come from Isaac Newton's idea that God, like, created the universe, but, like, wound it up like a clock and then stepped back, right? But what the Word says, and even now as scientists are realizing, there has to be something that is sustaining everything in the universe, Right? So, 
If sin separates you from God, then what is Jesus doing holding every one of your atoms together? Jesus is still sustaining you even when you're in sin. It doesn't separate from you. If Jesus removed himself from the universe, the whole thing would just cease to exist. He's the sustainer of all things. Everything was created in and through him and sustained by him. So you still have to ask these questions of, if Jesus is literally the thing holding all of us together, but we're going to promote a God that actually pulls back, that removes himself, can be austere, then you're going to have to ask, is the universe just a clock wound up and that God pulled back? Or is he actually incredibly involved in every thing in the entire universe? Because if that's true, then God is a lot closer than you think and a lot more involved than what you are. Um, so that, that's just to kind of continue to throw you into some fun stuff. That Jesus is the sustainer of it all. Well, there. We made it through a view in five minutes of new stuff. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I hope you go home questioning a few things. But when this begins to take root and begins to come to its full maturity, what you're going to come to is that there is no shadow or turning in God, that he only has one part of himself, and that is love. Do you realize why the only is statement about God being love is so powerful that we would defend that? Because when you get that one foundation nailed down, that he can't change, turn, or be anything other. The only people that changes is us. The intentions and desires have always been the same. That means God doesn't do abandonment. That means that God doesn't do turning away. That, doesn't, that means that God can't be distant. That means that God doesn't ever pull back. And that actually means that God is incredibly involved in every aspect of your life. That means there is no distance that you have created between you and him. Whether you've painted the image of God as the cross-armed judge, whether you've painted him as the far-distant creator that just wound up that clock and left, whether it's whatever it is, the weak or, or the non-caring or all the different images that you create, just because you think it and believe it doesn't mean it's true because what you're dealing with is the delusion. That really is the best way of describing the flesh. People talk about the flesh and they're like, I got to crucify the flesh. Beat it every day. I'm like, well, you should look at the cross because it says it actually died that day. But in reality, the flesh is the mind, the delusion that fights against God. And that's why it's so, 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 so important that the parakletos, Holy Spirit, would be Lord in our life because when it says that you will not fulfill the desires of sin when you yield to the impulses of the Holy Spirit. Because when we say, Holy Spirit, you know God, you know Jesus, and I yield to your knowing of him, and I make that Lord wherever the Spirit is, and the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, Wherever he is Lord, there is freedom. Why is there freedom? Because he's going to show you the truth of who God really is, his intentions, his, his desires towards you, that you were always planned to be a child. You were always planned to be adopted. You were always planned to be in Jesus. And when you get that truth, then suddenly you get free. And you get other-centered, and you get 
the reality that the good news is a lot better than what we've been told. The good news is God is good. And everybody needs to hear that. Everybody needs to come into that life. Why do you think Christians are so selfish? Because we've never been given the truth of who God is because the legal orientation splits God into a dualistic, egotistical, selfish, legalistic God that is unapproachable and is bipolar at times. There's no freedom there. And you can never live other-centered when you're still wondering if God has something in the closet. The, uh, you know, Paul even says that you're still living on milk if you have not been pierced with the revelation of righteousness. Literally, it's not about just what you say you believe in your head. It's about actually getting pierced and who you are that brings this true life, this Trinity life. I got I to gotta land this plane. There's so much more. There's always so much more. But I got to land this plane. But I, I want you to realize that we haven't even touched on the life of Jesus. We haven't even touched on fully what the cross looks like. We haven't even fully touched on Psalms 22 of what Jesus was saying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of falling into... David's delusion. We haven't even touched on the resurrection. We haven't even touched on the ascension. We all love the cross and the resurrection, but you forget that the, re the ascension is so big. And then we haven't even touched on what happens after that. We haven't even touched on those things. We haven't even touched on the dynamics of what this does to God. How this, how this changes our images of him. There's so much more. But as I said in the beginning as I was praying, I want, you to, I want you to wrestle with these things. I want you to take them. I want you to be good Bereans and go test everything. I want you to. But I want you to realize, follow life. Jesus said, hey, you got to eat my body and drink my blood, right? And maybe that wasn't literal, but he didn't feel like it was important to tell anybody, hey, guys, just kidding. And his, the disciples said the most amazing statement. They said, where are we going to go? Who has the words of life? And so the, the, there's going to be a, a resonance inside your spirit that's going to say, this is true. And then it has to make that awful, terrible, painstaking journey up to your head. And it may not survive the journey. Just, just saying. It's kind of a trial and error thing. But I want you to realize that when you, when you sense life, when you encounter that, say, okay, I don't understand it. Maybe I don't see it perfectly. Maybe it's not. But I'm actually going to celebrate this. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to press into that. And I can tell you that I'm encountering more life in this one understanding and the, the dynamic of what this means for us than probably anything I've ever experienced or ever taught or said in my entire life. There's so much more life upon it than anything I've ever known. So <clears throat> it's good news, and it's going to be so good when you guys start to get pierced with it that you're not going to be able to shut up about it, and you're going to want to tell everyone Come and see this amazing life. Um, but I got to land the plane. Got to land the plane. <laughs> Maybe. And I know I've packed a lot in. I can feel you guys. Uh, what are you saying? I'm saying that he's good. I'm saying that he's good. So, I'm going to pray for us. I think we'll sing a song. I think we need something. <laughs> but I want to pray for us that we would say, Jesus, just totally immerse me. You know, Jesus said, 
when the Holy Spirit comes on that day, you will know that I am the Father, and the Father is in me, and I am in you. The day that the Holy Spirit comes, comes the revelation of oneness, and that's what changes the world. So, let's just pray. We'll worship, and then we'll be done. How about? Does that sound good? Abba, woo, there's a lot. But there's so much of you still yet to be discovered. Lord, I just pray that you would that you would pierce us with the revelation of righteousness. Jesus is our Sabbath, and that means that we don't have to work anymore and try to earn it, that we get to live every day in the completed work of Jesus, and we get the revelation that we are righteous in him. We are exactly as we ought to be. So, Abba, I pray that you would pierce us with the revelation of righteousness. I pray that you would open us up to the reality of how loving and intimate you are with us. God, I pray that you would come and judge the belief that there could be any turning in you, that there could be any dark side of you, that there could be any other side. I know I'm going to see a day. I'm going to see a day. I'm going to see a handful of people that are going to discover life. They're not going to believe it by their own ability. They're going to yield to what you're saying. God, I've probably said this prayer over a hundred times in the last year. I don't, I don't know, God. I don't understand it. But I want it. Pray that it would hit me. That it would go deep. That I would be truly free.